0: And so we knew that this was a win. This wasn't one where we're like, you know, our client should have got this or anything like that. This was one where, you know, you just kind of step in. When that property had come up, I typically, you know, I kind of by this time I had known pretty much who my competition was going to be, but I had heard a voice that was very Mm -hmm. unfamiliar. And so I looked over there, and there's this lady. She and she's she's bidding on the property, and so I kind of stepped back. And as the bidding kept on going, as the bidding kept getting higher, she started to get more distressed. Eventually, there was a gentleman who was next to her, put his arm around her and kinda you know, was was consoling her. The bidding got too high and she stopped
1: and she just stormed off in tears. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom
2: all right, guys, today we are here with Devaney Carswell and Matthew Klein of Walnut Creek Realty. We're going to be getting into foreclosure auctions today, but before we jump into that, we'd love to kick it off with a story, guys. So could you tell us your craziest real estate transaction? And I know you have plenty if you work foreclosures so far.
1: <laughs>
0: we kind <gotta> to do. <laughs> well, i um- probably one of the most significant ones that we did, and it actually didn't consummate as a transaction. Um, Devaney, I, Devaney regularly, when we're, when we're pursuing these for clients, she'll go out and she will knock on doors, uh, you know, for six weeks before the auction, things like that. And she had talked with this one gentleman um, and he was, very guarded and basically said, no, no, don't have any problems. Nothing like that. You know, everything's, everything's fine kind of thing. And obviously we knew that wasn't the case, but we reviewed the property for our client and we, we talked it over with them, told them what we found. And then the following Monday uh, I show up at the auction and when that property had come up, Uh, I typically, you know, I kind of, by this time I had known pretty much who my competition was going to be, but I had heard a voice that was very Mm -hmm. unfamiliar. And so I looked over there and there's this lady and she looks very distressed, very distraught and she, and she's, she's bidding on the property. And so I kind of stepped back and I let the other people just kind of jump in. I wanted to see what was going to happen or how this was going to kind of work out and as the bidding kept on going, as the bidding kept getting higher, she started to get more distressed. Eventually, there was a gentleman who was next to her put his arm around her and kind of you know was, was consoling her. The bidding got too high, and she stopped and she just stormed off in tears. And there was something in the back of my head telling me, we gotta find out, you know, what's going on, what what happened here. We got we got to find these people. So when the auction was over, I had called Devaney and I said, you know, this is the address, can you tell me what happened here? Do you remember this property? And she had said, yeah, you know, and she gave me a brief explanation of what had happened. I said, well, we're going there, <laughs> you know, I know it's going to count, sound really weird, but we, we've got to go. Mm-hmm. So we hopped in the car the next day, went over there, knocked on this guy's door and he was completely flabbergasted he was thinking, you know, I just lost the family home. It's been in the family for three generations. You know that Mm -hmm. it's just, it's, he was completely distraught thinking that everything was over. And after about 15 minutes of talking with him, you know, Devaney was, she's very empathetic and she was able to get him down, console him to the point that we were able to sit down with him and talk to him and figure out what happened. And It had been just with this guy. It had been like tragedy after tragedy, just kind of like a downward spiral. Uh, In short, I had asked him, I said, well, show me me what happened. Show me the tax bill. Show me what this is all about. And it turned out, you know, in Ohio here, the county taxes, they – they go one of two ways, either the treasurer prosecutes you or, you know, they get sold off to a, a third party. You know, they just bunch a bunch of tax lien certificates together, mm-hmm. sell them all to a third party. Well, that's what this was. And I looked at the bill and like my heart went up into my throat. It's less than $10,000. I mean, you know, there's something can be done here, right? We, we ju- we just, we just can't let this go. So we talked with him, and then he said, well, I can't even tell my, you know, tell my sister. And so somehow she had found out, I guess, through publicly. Long or the short is we ended up, between Devaney and I, reaching out to an attorney that we had a relationship with. And um, he stepped in, told him basically, no, this is over, We can file a stay of confirmation, and then we can get the payoff amount. And so he did that for them. And then the you know the family had they were bidding way higher than than the amount was that was uh you know on the tax certificate on the tax certificate, so put a stop on it. Got the payoff amount, and you know we met them at a, a FedEx a few days later. Put all the things together, shipped it off, and uh, you know the, the the family came back and it they were just like flabbergasted who does this? <laughs> you know, I, like, I, mean, I
3: remember when that guy entered the door and we, t- we told him why we were there. Um, and he was like, oh my God, you're a godsend. I was like, we kind of really are because Matt was like, I think God's telling me I need to go see these people.
1: <laughs> yeah. How interesting. And so like, this brings up all kinds of, of just curious like questions that I have. Like, so for example, so this thing went to auction, mm-hmm. was sold at auction mm-hmm but that's not the final word there. No. Like there's an ability, like a redemption process that can be had and so on and so forth.
0: So a property here is not sold or completed until the sale is confirmed. So a judge actually has to confirm the sale after. So even even when someone's bidding there and you're done with your bid, There's still a lag. There's still a period of time. And at that time with tax sales, it would have been something like, I think in that court, it was like 20, 25 days that you had where you could file something or you could, you know, make the debt whole and it would be vacated. Uh, With mortgage sales at that time, it was it was running a bit longer. But, yeah, it was it was by no means over. And so but they didn't know that. And when the sister showed up, she was obviously willing to pay a whole lot more to save the family home. And so we knew that this was this was a win. This wasn't one where we're like, oh, you know, our client should have got this or anything like that. This was one where, you know, you just kind of step in. The home was paid for. And it had been in the family for yeah. three generations, I think it was. So, yeah. And, it, and over something less than $10,000, we knew you got to step in here and and help them figure this out.
1: (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) So, so glad you did that. You know, I'm sure like the investors probably obviously that put in the offers probably like shocked and bummed and whatnot, but, but kudos to you guys for doing the right thing.
0: No, they weren't at all. I mean, that, that particular client, he, he had given us a, a, a lot of discretion. We have basically come to him each week and said, okay, you know, there's, At that time when this was happening, there were probably 100, 125 a week in that particular county that were on the block. There Mm -hmm. there was an awful lot to choose from. So we were, you know, we would pick out, you know, the seven or the eight best and say, okay, these are the ones that we think are the the best targets. And so, no, it wasn't wasn't like that at all.
1: (laughs) Gotcha. Cool. So this is such an... interesting niche. I mean, there's a lot of people that are super interested in knowing more about the foreclosure process, how to get into it. Can you tell us, I'd like to start with a market overview. So when did this story take place? Has the amount available changed? Like I know in California, as an example, there were a lot back in you know 2008, 2009, 2010. Now there's like very, very little. Is it the same there? Or tell us like how, how it's working. Go ahead.
3: I'm I think there's less, not there's both fewer number of houses listed. I mean, I can remember when I first went, there'd be, gosh, 20, 30 pages across the board. And now there's like five mm-hmm. <laughs> at Cuyahoga County. Um, and not only that, but the market is more saturated with um, buyers, with investors. So it became a lot more difficult in Cuyahoga to purchase. So we stopped and pulled out of Cuyahoga. Um, you want to add to that? You're, you like, yeah, to, and when, you like to analyze. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, when when we saw the market was getting, it, you know, saturated, the, the strategy had always been to go where your competition is not. So, if they were concentrating, and you know that that particular county, the Cuyahoga, it was a big county, so there were there were a lot of places to go. So when they started concentrating in one area, we would move to mm. another and we would simply keep moving. We've, there, there was opportunity where your competition was not. It's just, you know, how we, how we looked at it. And then we realized as things kept going, we're going to have to get better. We're going to have to understand these neighborhoods a little bit better, find these little niche neighborhoods because people kept coming in and the, the numbers kept growing. So eventually, you know, there, there would be, you know, instances where we would see a street name up there. And there was a pretty high probability that most people would, especially if they were Mm -hmm. not from the area, because we were getting a lot of outside investors, if they were not from the area, they wouldn't know about it. But but, hey, you know, this little street, there are three blocks that are part of this really nice historical neighborhood. But an outsider is not going to know that. We do, you know, and so then we started Mm -hmm. niching into those things. And eventually when Cuyahoga got too crowded, we just said, you know next county over, <laughs> you know, that's, that's where we started to move to. So it, it just became going where the competition was not or unwilling to go, if you will.
2: Absolutely. And that's absolutely a fantastic strategy. As they say, often the riches are in the niches. Well, I'm curious based off of what you just said, as you're pivoting, how do you define which markets to go into? And then you're, probably starting over to a degree, right? Because you need new buyers and all of that stuff. So could you kind of give us a broad strokes overview of how you define the the next market and then how you attack it?
0: The clients, when 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 I had chosen to work with specific clients, I wanted to make sure that they were flexible. So it was more to them. It wasn't so much about, I have to have area as much as it was, I have to have, this kind of property, mm-hmm. this kind of margin, this is what I can do. So if that property is within 20 minutes of home base or it's an hour and 20 minutes from home base, I'm willing to do it as long as the numbers work. You know, that was really what it came down to. So they, they gave me an awful lot of flexibility to move. So when I started looking at the other counties, I started looking at what is my competition over there. I would sometimes I would sometimes just show up and sit with no intention of bidding, but actually looking at who was doing the bidding act, you know, and then later on going back and saying, okay, so this is this guy, let's see what else he's got. Let's see where what else I... he's done so that I can kind of gauge where my competition is, where my competition is buying. And then is this, is this an area that I want to get into? Uh, there is one rural county for instance, that we, <laughs> I showed up one morning for, for a bid on a client and. I was sitting in the hall and the deputy showed up. He came out and he saw the the paralegal that was representing the bank. And he looked at her and he said, Well, no one's here. Why don't you come on in and we'll just sign the paperwork? And I looked over at him, I said, Wait a minute. I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) And he said to me, he said, Oh, he said, Well, come on into my office, we'll just do the bidding in here, you know. So I mean, literally, we just sat there in the deputy's office. She's on one side, I'm the on the other side of the desk, and we're just doing this bidding on this house. It was uh, an interesting experience, to say the least, but you could, you could gauge by that. You didn't have that competition there, so there was more opportunity in that county because there was no one there
1: looking at it. That's incredible to believe. I mean, I, and you know it's true because there's rural counties, but to think – that there's counties so small in competition that you're literally it's just you or just you and one other person. So I want to walk through the thought process here. So you start in the county, you know, the best you start going to these outside counties, which obviously starts taking you geographically probably farther away from where you live. Did you ever get to a place where you were in counties that you knew very little about? How did you balance between moving out farther and you know, not knowing your area and less competition.
0: If we had an area that we didn't know much about, but we sensed that there was an opportunity, then it was upon us for our client to learn about it. And so the things that we would do is we would we would say, okay, let's, you know, this is county X and here is town Y. Let's call the building department. Let's call the, the, the courts. Let's call you know, all these different areas and let's see what we can learn about their systems. You know, some, some counties, when you sell a house, they require things like your septic system has to be inspected or your well has to be inspected. Things, things that could be, you know, potential um, problems for people who didn't know, they weren't expecting those kind of things. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go and buy a house and then it's, that's it. And it may not be the case. So we would, we would go in and, you know, if they didn't have a building apartment, then we, 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 you'd, you'd call the village or you'd call the county if it was, you know, unzoned, if you will, or unincorporated. Um, and you you just learn the rules. You, you'd figure it out. And then you'd go down there and start looking, you know, just it, it, it would seem like at the beginning, especially that you're wasting your time when you're going around checking out and previewing listings that are an hour mm-hmm. away from you. But if you're learning that market, there's always you know, there's always something you can learn. Right. There's always something you can learn. So it, I may not be able to use it this minute or even with this client, but I'm learning something here and I'm going to be able to use this at some point. So that was kind of like the goal behind it. And and we were able to do that. Just
3: tons and tons of research.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. So I mean, you're learning as you're going, but I mean, you're doing it with a strategic approach. So I'm really curious how you guys do due diligence on these. So I mean, I'm super familiar with the auction.com model. So I mean, obviously they mark properties occupied and vacant. In my experience, almost 50% of the occupied ones were actually vacant. So driving by and just checking them out was a huge advantage to me. So I'm curious. I mean, obviously you're doing the sheriff sales too. Are you guys doing drive-bys and then doing underwriting from a computer and doing detailed analysis that way? Or are you just doing it? Essentially, virtually.
3: Well, Matt calls me the bulldog. He kind of introduces me to everybody as his bulldog, um, and that's the biggest part of, of my position here. I go, I do drive bys. My spidey sense tells me if I need to ke- need to keep on driving, um, but most of the time I park my car, I get out, take a few pictures so that I have some solid something this is what the house condition currently is um and then i go knock on a door and see if somebody if i can get somebody to the door and when they answer i'm like you know hey um i'm here with walnut creek realty we have a client who's interested in purchasing your property at the auction that's coming up and they're either like it's not going to the block go away or they pause like Okay. What, like, what are you going to say next? Um, and then I just tell them, you know, we're just, I'm just here to gather some information. What can you tell me? Can I get some pictures and keep going from there? Um, sometimes they let me in. Sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes they'll, they won't let me in, but they'll tell me everything that's wrong with the house that I could possibly imagine, or they'll tell me everything they fixed on the house. Um, I'll If I feel like it, maybe it's vacant, maybe it's not vacant. I'll go knock on a neighbor's door hey, is this house vacant? What can you tell me about it? And they'll tell me everything that's wrong with the house <laughs> or how long it's been vacant. Um, so I, I just I just really look around and get as, as much information as I can from whatever source I can get it from.
1: Love this. And so just to kind of recap the process, so if you're going into a new county, in other words, a new market, you're first calling the building inspectors, understanding the difference in regulations and how they run their particular you know, set of processes. Then you're going and previewing a bunch of listings to get a sense of the market, maybe doing some research on like which areas are historical, those types of things. And then finally you're going, looking at the list of properties going to auction and actually doing the full preview for your clients, getting the full info before going to the auction. Does that sound pretty similar to the process or is there something else that you guys do?
0: yeah, the, the name of the game in the end is I want to have my clients provided with more information than their competition. The more information you have, the better. So you know, and sometimes you it, an understanding that even that information you have may not be totally accurate. Like there was one early on that uh, Dey had knocked on a door and they were friendly enough. they let her inside. She got some photos. She took a look around. And what we saw was the county records were horribly inaccurate on the property. So we knew right then and there, if our competition was looking at it and they were looking and they were relying on that single source of data saying, okay, this house is X amount of square feet. and has X amount of bedrooms and bathrooms. They were going to underbid because the house Mm -hmm. actually had quite a bit more to it.
3: Had like two bedrooms and a bath more.
0: Correct. Yeah. And it had like, you know, about 400 square feet more than what the the county had, had actually said. And all that information simply came from Devaney knocking on a door and just, you know, being bold enough to say, hey, yeah, hey, you know, we're here. And then in, in that particular case, that particular client had said, you know, thank you for doing this and what we're going to do we're not going to evict when this is you know if we get the house we're not mm-hmm. going to evict and they just gave them an extended amount of time and some help to move the family out you know in and basically a, as gratitude for their co- cooperation because there was no way in that particular case they were going to be able to sell the home or to stop the to stop, yeah, the, to stop the foreclosure sense.
3: so i'm also really fortunate with the clients that we have they don't just go in and if the house is vac- is, is occupied they don't just go in and kick people out. Um, our guys tend to to work with the occupants of the house and give them a little extra time. You know, they don't just immediately slap a three day notice. We do a lot of cash for keys, um, type of things. And I and I mention that immediately when I talk to somebody. You know, hey, if if my clients bid on your house, the more information they have better chances they are of bidding on it than the better chances you have of working with somebody who will work with you as opposed to a bank who will give you 30 days immediately or another investor who's going to immediately slap a three-day notice on your door. So that helps. (laughs) Getting my foot in in the door.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, which is great when it comes to sales I want to, like, speaking of sales, like you're doing door knocking, which uh, we, I love sales. So like I love any discussion that surrounds strategies and things of that nature. You're going to these places of people that a lot of times are in distress if they're not paying their taxes or not paying their bills going to auction. I've done some of this work. I bought properties pre-tax auction, et cetera. So some of the situations I found myself in are a little bit interesting, a little bit rough. You're a very sweet, obviously very courageous woman and like i could see why you do so well do you ever have fear do you take somebody with you how do you handle like the safety aspects of not just not door knocking but door knocking these people that might be in some crazy situations
3: um people ask me that all the time and i'm not really afraid um i don't normally have somebody with me my husband drives with me a lot um uh, on like Saturdays, that's kind of our date night. (laughs) It's like we go to work. So he's with me sometimes. Um, I just really rely on my senses. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking out. Um, I just, if I feel like "Eh, this doesn't feel like a house to approach, I don't. Um, if somebody comes to the door and they're raging at me, I just say, okay, no problem. I, I don't walk away. I don't do anything to engage them. um, I don't carry. <laughs> I don't I don't have anything like that on me. I don't have mace on me. I don't, you know. It you know just kind of I just I just really go by my senses. And I'll tell you what's scarier is walking into an empty house and just being like this don't feel good. <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> I've had more of those situations than I've dealt with nasty people who are really mad that they're losing their house. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's so funny. I could relate so well to that <laughs> comment in particular. So, I mean, I love what you do on a lot of levels because, I mean, you kind of approach this almost like an REO listing agent because you're going there, you're knocking on the neighbor's house, you're trying to get as much information as possible. And that's obviously setting a standard for you that is far, far better than the competition. Cause you know, the county records are often wrong, like you said, and you're actually getting conditioned comments. And if they let you in, you're getting pictures too. So I imagine you're almost the only one in the market doing that. Um, What I would really love to know is how did you Did you just start doing that right away? Were you going bulldog right away? We're going to go right after these clients get as much information as possible. Or is that a strategy that you guys came up with over time and developed?
0: Um, Well, I actually came out of the REO field.
2: Ah, so makes sense. That
0: was one of the, the connections. Yeah, okay. that was one of the I, I learned, I, I learned an awful lot during that time. I had gotten in and it was more by by luck than anything else around 2007. And um, so, you know, doing all that we had done during that period of time working for for those big banks was very helpful in in developing a process later on when i I could see that i had to transition again and move out or move away from reo having all that experience was very helpful in developing the processes that we have now
3: yeah and initially when they brought when they brought me on board um to do this we were giving out 50 dollar gift cards like if 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 you allow me if if you have a few minutes and I can come take pictures of the inside of your house. Here's a $50 gift card for you. Um, But I found that people would let me in whether I had the gift card or not. They were, they either were, or they weren't. It really didn't matter because I had the $50 gift card and some people were still like, no, you're not coming in my house. So. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Some people might even be turned off by the $50 gift card. Like why, why is there monetary value for you here?
3: Yeah.
0: I didn't, didn't really see a point to it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. So you're in this role where you're providing an unbelievable service to your clients and you're going super deep to analyze the properties for them. Have you guys had the thought of, well, we're going to see these properties. We're finding out the great deals. Why don't we just buy these deals? Has that thought occurred? Or if so, like what's what's keeping you helping clients buy them instead of taking them for yourself?
3: I will one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's in the it's in the foreseeable future
0: <laughs> my clients' strategies don't necessarily align with what would be you know my strategy a lot of my clients they have they like to use leverage they like to you know uh, private lenders or or you know these 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 bigger lenders that will do you know hard money 12%, 16, 18 whatever it is and i didn't see that as something that that was a risk I was willing to take. I just, I've I just kind of have this aversion to that. So if I had, and you know, if I had purchased a property and I have, but it's, it's, it's rarely it's I'm doing that. And I'm doing that without taking the extra risk. I don't like owing anyone, especially somebody that I would like a private lender as such money, you know? So I just, yeah. I just averted away from that.
1: Totally. So, your kind of long term play is I'll keep helping clients buy these, save up cash over time, buy them without leverage, and just know that there's a lot of security there that you're not going to lose a property back to a lender. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So, if you wouldn't mind giving us a breakdown of in these counties that there's less competition, what do the deals look like? Like, what generally, and I know it'll range per property, but what give us like an average of like what's a purchase price there? What do these things rent for? If an investor wanted to have you guys find them a property, if they're an out-of-state investor, what what returns are generally likely? Goodness,
0: they vary. Mm-hmm. But I would say in, in general, the, the price points that we try, especially under current market conditions, the price points that we are trying to keep them on under at this point would be an after-repaired value of 200 or under. What we found at this point is um, there's been a lot of uh, you know when when you start getting up to four, five 600, the moves that are happening and the interest rates they start to mm-hmm. they start to matter, right? They really start that people start looking at that monthly payment and going that's a big deal because over the course of a year that could be you know eight, nine thousand dollars that could be going someplace else. But the interest rate doesn't seem at this point yet, and of course, it will eventually trickle down, but it doesn't affect as much the person who's purchasing a home at a hundred or $150,000, if you will. So at this point, it's the, they're more price sensitive. So it isn't so much county specific as it is price sensitive. And I want to be sure that I still have an audience when my home gets to the market, whether that's three months, six months, nine months from now. So that's... That's where we've kind of gauged it. If a client insists and they tell us otherwise, no, I want this. We'll do it, obviously. But um, when we're talking to them, we're, we're we're giving them not just the the micro data, if you will, you know, county specific, but we're also talking macro data. You know, we look we look at other other areas such as you know nationally, how is the housing market doing? New builds, things like that. Is it in contraction? Uh, And and looking specifically at the single family numbers, as opposed to the multifamily, if you will, because the multifamily is going to tell you that builders and lenders, if you will, they're anticipating a higher rental demand, as opposed to the single family numbers, which are going to tell you there is still a demand for people who want to buy, they want to own that home, if you will.
1: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And so, if, if someone's buying a property at say hundred or 150,000 is that property typically renting for like a thousand a month or two thousand a month or
0: Again it's market specific there's a there was a market in in Cleveland where you could have that kind of home and it would rent for 1800 2200 a month and then you would switch cities mm-hmm. in just a mile or two away mm-hmm. and then it would be 1200 a mm-hmm. thousand. You know, it was really Cleveland is kind of this, it's this interesting uh, conglomerate of neighborhoods where you can literally be on one street and your housing values are, you know, 50, 80, 100. And then you walk the next block over and then it's 300, 400, 500. And it's just, it's,
1: it's very neighborhood specific.
3: Very, very pocketed.
1: Gotcha. So, you were in the REO business. Is it fair to say that's the reason you guys went down this avenue, or were there other reasons that led you into the foreclosure game? So the
0: client that um, the client that we had started this with was one that had some pretty high demands. And at the time that I had him, I was listing REOs, but I was not able to meet the demands that he had you know I wasn't I was he wanted more than I was able to provide and what I was seeing was that the MLS itself by that point in time was getting pretty saturated with REOs and at the you know the the retail side Mm -hmm. wasn't getting the multiples but the investor side the REO side we were getting them all the time so it became saturated. And at that point I said, I've got to find a way to separate myself and be able to be to take care of this guy. And that's when I pivoted and I said, Let me explain to you, this is what I'm thinking. You know, let's kind of brainstorm this out. Are you willing to take on this risk? This is what I can do for you. I can't guarantee you they're gonna let me into their homes. But I can get as much data as possible for you on the home. I can call the building departments, I can call uh, you know, the housing inspectors, things like that. Try talk to the neighbors, get as much information as I can. You know, we can take a look at the permits and all that. We can see what they've done to the house in the past, but there's still going to be this degree of risk. And if you back out, you lose your money. And he basically at that point go. So we went and that was, it was really a progression to satisfy one client that ended up satisfying a lot of clients.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I love where we're going now because your model is extremely unique. I don't think I've heard anybody else quite doing it your way. Obviously, there's a lot of investors doing a similar strategy, but their their job is to purchase it, right? You guys actually represent clients essentially in an agency role. And you're collecting a commission from the clients. So can we get into how that is structured? Um, is there a buyer's agreement on the front end? Is it a handshake agreement? How does this all work in practice?
0: Yeah, there, the The way it is set up now, there is a buyer's, mm-hmm. buyer's agency agreement right up front, and we basically tell them, you know, this is our role, this is what we're going to do, and this is what you're going to do. Okay, this is, you know, this this is my set of responsibilities. This is your set of responsibilities if you agree, here's the fee, you know, this is what it is. And and that fee is, you know, whatever it is and that's that's it. And so they, you know, and it was, I thought it would be a lot more difficult to sell than what it was. Um, It actually turned out not to be very difficult at all to do because at that time, when we first started this, there was nobody else that I, I mean, I'm sure there were, but there was nobody else that I knew who was doing that. So it became a product that was really unique. And it was very, for me at that beginning, very, very sellable.
1: Love that. So basically they're signing this buyer agreement and then they're going, now, do they have to come in and buy these properties cash? You mentioned private money. Are they able to get traditional financing? Like what does the process look like from the buyer's end?
0: So no, they can't get, they can't get traditional financing. It's just, I would not take that risk because at that time, since I was physically showing up, you know, I would have been the one that would have been held accountable. So I had already, all these clients, I had vetted them far in advance, knowing what their capabilities were, knowing what they weren't. And I would not do that with a client until I had a consistent long history with them, you know, knowing that. These people had constantly what they said, they would do, you know, and, and I had no 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 doubt in my mind because I was actually kind of extending myself a little mm-hmm. bit, if you will, saying, okay, this is this is who it is. This is, you know, I'm going there on your behalf. Yes, I you understand that I'm I'm doing that, but in the end, they I'm the one they see at the auction, not you. So I had to have that trust factor already set into place. And it wasn't just, oh, okay, I trust you. I had to have a consistent long history typically it would have been a couple years before that. I would do that for a client, you know, seeing that we had consistently followed through on everything. There weren't no defaults. There was nothing of that sort.
1: This is really, really cool. And so I would love to know a little bit more and obviously it's probably changed since you started, but if you were to take the, as is value of a home, and then the value that you guys buy it at, is, is there a big difference? And if so, can you kind of elaborate on like what what sort of benefit is a client getting by buying a home this way as opposed to on MLS?
0: There's more risk. But where there's more risk, there is the opportunity yeah, for welcome. more reward. So, again, our strategy had always been provide the client with as much information as possible so they can make the best they could have the best education, if you will, make the best decision for themselves when, when purchasing the property. And there were properties when we had shown up that had looked wonderful. They had looked great. But we had gotten down to that last phone call and we had found out that there was something that was, you know, uh, a sewer line had just gone in and they were requiring a tap in. And so there's going to be an extra twenty, thirty thousand dollars put on the assessment mm-hmm. for that tap in. And we'd say, well, that looks great, but. We're not doing it, you know. And if our competition had not made that phone call, they could have been inheriting that problem, you know, because that would have been something that would have been an unknown. If they would have gone into it knowingly, it would have, and I have no way of knowing, but for my clients, that would have been a, a dereliction of duty, if you will, uh, that I, I it, it could not be because they're relying on me on a higher risk situation. So they have to have as much information as possible. And mistakes happened, but uh, they they were not for a lack of diligence, if you will.
3: And the the value of the house is really because they it's it's at the sheriff's sale it's two-thirds of the appraised value of the house. So sometimes that works really well. If you're going into a really great neighborhood, you're gonna get a really good deal. But you get sometimes the appraised value, it's it's appraised way too high um, mm-hmm. and and the house is you know really run down and and not in good condition at all. Um, so, it so just a lot of
1: times these investors you mentioned two- thirds like would you say that a lot of times these investors are getting properties at 20 to 30, maybe 20 to 40% below market value. The reason I ask is here in California, I went to a number of auctions maybe four or five years ago. I went to enough to realize that it seemed like at almost every auction, the vast majority of properties sold at or above market value, not below, which to me was crazy. Why somebody would come in, take the risk, pay market value or more. Why don't you just buy a home on the MLS? But I'm assuming there there's probably still opportunity to buy something at at decently below market value, at least as far as a percentage goes.
0: Well, in in theory, that would be right, but you you have to understand how I don't know how it is in California, but uh, how the values were be de- being determined here. So uh, basically, a, a sheriff when he's appraising the property, because that's who does the appraisal to establish the two thirds bid, um, he's just driving by. That's it. Yeah. That's all that they do. You know, and some of them don't even get out of the car. You know, right. I, so that that's that's you know the sheriff hires, hires the appraisal, but they're not seeing the inside, and so you kind of right. have to take those with a with a grain of salt, if you will, and really kind of more rely on your market knowledge, your market data to determine what that is. I mean, I, as mm-hmm. a REO agent, I remember a couple times getting phone calls right before. The sheriff sale and they would say to me well your value on your, your your bpo came in at this but the sheriff's got it appraised at this why is that and i would have to sit there and explain it you know this is what he's doing you know and this is all he's doing he doesn't have access to the same data that i do so naturally we're going to be different and his you know as a as a profession a sheriff is not you know, he's not licensed to sell real estate. He doesn't do that, he doesn't value property. That's not his main function. So it's a it's a completely different, it's a completely different animal, if you will. The value they're giving and the value that a real estate professional will give you.
2: Absolutely tremendous answer. And I totally agree with you. Um, and I'm also very familiar with auction.com's model. Essentially they get three BPOs and they take the average. So if you get really lucky, you could get three low-end BPOs, and the, and the market difference in price could actually be much better than the actual market value. So, I mean, it's really, it's just really cool that you mentioned that because I'm super familiar with drive-by BPOs and REO in general. I remember having those types of conversations too, in particular with asset managers. It's like, hey, we got this other BPO at this price, and and having to, you know, make a good argument for your value is something I've been doing for a very, very long time. I'm curious as the market is shifting. Are you looking to re-establish those REO relationships now? Because it seems like it might be an opportune time. And if so, what is your approach doing that?
0: I don't know that I am, to be completely honest with you. You know, that was, that was something that when, you know, kind of happens, danced into it. And um, it was great for its time. But, you know, the, the amount of work, and it sounds to me like you were an REO agent at one point, but the amount of work that actually goes into those—I mean, it—it's—it's it's brutal. It's tough. It's way more than me just going up and typing a few lines in the MLS and putting it up there with a couple photos. There's, there's so much more on the front end, and there's a ton on the back end. You know, it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's quite a bit. And if you don't have the right staff and trustful staff in place, I've watched. Some of my some of my colleagues go under because, you know, there there were things like there were reimbursements that never got reimbursed, you know, th- things of that sort. And those numbers started to add up to where they got buried. And if you if you don't have that system in place, you know, it's 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 tough. The banks are very demanding. And I, I just don't know that at this point I've thought about it, but I just don't know at this point that I'm willing to go back.
3: It might be. something You that are I'm, not
1: alone. Yeah,
3: it might be something Good. that I'm going into. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Talk, talk, tell us about Well, I that. don't
3: know yet. I got to talk to Matt. We've, we've discussed it a little bit. So it's something that I might be looking into going into.
1: Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting, the opportunity that might lie ahead too. So do you guys foresee that the number of these foreclosures, the number of these auctions is going to go up? Are you seeing any evidence of that in your area? So we keep
0: track yeah. of we, yeah, we we keep a we keep a watch again on not just the just not the macro level but on the micro level we keep in touch with the courts and we do we we are seeing an increase in the number of uh, complaints filed so we're seeing it in, and, and not just from the not just from the treasurers but from you know from the from the mortgage companies if you will as well the thing that we're we're really kind of looking at is you know everything that happened, um, from, you know, 2020 on kind of skewed, uh, what would have been a normal trajectory, if you will. So we're looking at that data right now and we're, we're kind of taking it with a little bit of grain of salt, but we're, we're keeping a close eye on it because there seems to be a, a steady increase. And, you know, for our area, the amount of time right now that it's taking for a typical file to To run through the system is anywhere from uh, eight to ten months. So if we if we continue to see that uptick, then you know, then then that outlook is you know eight to ten months from now, you're going to start to see
2: mm-hmm.
0: more and more inventory of that type hitting the market.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And then, what is the is what, what's the foreclosure process in your area? I know there's a variation of them, right? Some of them have long rights of redemption. Some of them are judicial sale states and some of them are, I forget the other term, um, but like, what is the Ohio process? What does that look like from, from front to end?
0: Ohio's like constant, it is uh, constantly changing. It's evolving <laughs> right now. Uh, Ohio is a judicial state, but they have, they've made changes. In, in the past several years, um, which afforded at least for a short time some of our clients opportunities, where initially, I, I think this, don't quote me on this, but I think this was 2017, where they changed the rules to allow not just the sheriff to conduct the uh, sheriff sale, but they now allowed what they call private selling mm-hmm. officers. And the private selling officers can then use their own platforms. Auction.com is obviously one of them that they've used, but there are others that are out there and some of them are not that well-known. They just don't get that much traffic, that much drive. Um, And another part of that change was by a certain date, and I think it's this year, or maybe it's next year, uh, all the mortgage foreclosures have to be conducted online and what that has done is that has afforded uh the opportunity for individuals who are not in state and previously may have never shown up down at the courthouse to bid on properties by simply you know going online wiring a deposit in and then simply sitting there and clicking a few buttons you know and 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 bidding on houses that uh You know, they may not have otherwise been afforded before because the auctions were always in person. So that is most counties are on, but there are still some locally here that are not yet that we are we are still participating in trying to keep that edge for as long as we can anyway.
2: (laughs) Awesome. Thank you for answering that question. Um, This will be a two parter. Um, how long do you think the foreclosure process tends to be over there from front to end number one? And I'm really curious how it looks. Let's say the cash for keys option doesn't work and you have to go the eviction route in the foreclosure route. I would love to know how the sheriff's approach it there. Cause there's two very different approaches by me city of Chicago. If it goes to eviction, they ram the door in, they kick them out. And then it's our job to secure the property all properties still inside. We need to negotiate all the, the turnover of that afterwards. Most suburban counties, a little bit different, but they'll take the tenant out or the occupant or the owner, whatever it was. And then the preservation company literally takes all the furniture to the curb that day. So I'm just curious how that process look, looks out by you guys.
3: The first part, how long does it take for the foreclosure process from beginning to end? It varies. I've seen, I've seen, I've heard people say it's only been six months. I've seen it go two years because you can, they can keep filing and continuing and they can delay it if they have an attorney. If they don't have attorney, it can be short, not that long.
0: Yeah. But Um, I I guess it would, um, if we're talking about, you know, the process from start to finish where the bank has title, it's definitely shorter now. Earlier, definitely earlier on when, when I was doing this, I would end up at sometimes listing properties where they still didn't have the sheriff deed and the sheriff's deed. You'd be waiting a month, two months, three months, but the property beyond the market, it had sold, you know, the plaintiff took it back, but the, the courts were so backed up with so many sheriff deeds and, you know, trying mm-hmm. to confirm sales and everything else that it was, it, it, it could have easily been a year, a year and a half at that time. Now, yeah, it seems like it's down, you know, six, nine months typically is, mm-hmm. is, is what you see, unless you've got, you know, someone who's in there and lots of motions being filed, things of that sort, a lot of contesting going on, and then, you know, it can it can go further out.
3: Um, the eviction process, uh, once you go to court, you seven to 10 days, uh, they got to be out. Um, and on that day that you have to be out... Someone shows up, well, I used to work property management and I've represented a couple of clients that Matt had. Um, someone shows up either from the property management or for the client, the sheriff shows up and somebody who knows how to drill a lock. <laughs> and and we, they're there, they're not there, we drill the lock and property will go out. Well, it depends on what city you're in. Uh, city of Cleveland, your stuff goes to the curb. Someone drills the lock, and your stuff starts going. They have a, a moving company or something like that. Um, there's a, another city. Um, I think it's Euclid. Um, they require you to put uh, their st- their items in storage for 30 days, and then they are responsible for it after that. I think there's another city who does that too. Well, it, it also
0: it also varies on yeah. on the foreclosure if it's a homeowner or if it's a tenant. There are certain protections uh not just at the not just at the county level but there's also certain protections that are there for the tenants as opposed to a homeowner which are which are also in place so it wasn't always yeah
3: i don't think i've ever done an eviction for a foreclosure
0: yeah there there were there were certain protections that were in place for the tenants over over the homeowners so in in the case of the tenants it typically took took longer. I think there was an act of protecting tenants and foreclosure act or something like that. And there was a, a bunch of rules and regulations that we had to abide by. So in those cases, it, it definitely took, definitely took longer.
1: Wow. So one of the things that we care a lot about on the show is not just about becoming successful, and making money, but what purpose that we serve in that process. So the question we'd like to ask is if you had a billion dollars in the bank, and 100 lifetimes of cash flow, what would you, how would you structure your life? What would your freedom look like?
3: I've always said after I bought everybody cars and houses and all that important stuff, the first three things that I would get, well, now there's four, I, a personal chef, personal trainer, um, someone, a, a landscaper, my yard would look nice. And I would, I would buy real estate all over the place because I want to go travel and live. I want to go to Italy this week and I want to go to Florida this week or I want to go wherever my husband thinks I'm nuts because you know, he's like, but you know, you have to upkeep it and people have to live there. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Cause then you make money. Cause now we live in the days of Airbnb, <laughs> so I, you know, totally, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, but I would just, and I'm, I'm also an artist. I'm a part, I'm a potter. And I like, photography. So I would be going places and learning from the masters and just that would, that would be my life. That would be my freedom. What are you doing, Matt? Billions of dollars and hundreds of lifetime of income.
0: It's, it's family, Mm -hmm. right? It's, I would definitely at that point say, you know, I, I, I don't think I could ever stop doing what I'm doing you know, it's just something that I, I absolutely love, but I would probably regulate it in such a way that, um, you know, my family took more of a precedence over over than, than what I do now. Instead of, you know, going the, the traditional, you know, 8 to 12 hours a day kind of thing, which is, you know, what, what's normal when you run your own business and mm-hmm. longer, um, I would just step back and say, you know, I'm giving more time to my wife. I'm giving more time to my kids, giving more time to the grandparents, you know, and that's, and that's, and help them, but help them without without doing it in a way that would, forgive me for saying it like this, but not doing it in a way that would enable bad behavior. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. you know, cause sometimes the the helping can actually not really be helping, but you're enabling, mm-hmm. you know, so.
3: Are you doing it from Georgia County? Huh. Are you doing it from Geauga County? Yeah, maybe so.
2: <laughs> um, I love that question so much because the variance in responses is so wide, but it almost always goes down to purpose and what your core values are. So, I mean, it's just fun to learn more and more about people and, and what their desires are. Um, this is a specific question for you, Matthew. And I think Devon, might be interested in the response because of her interest in REO. I think a lot of agents right now are thinking about the pivot into REO. And I don't want to keep this super long. Um, REO is a super systemic thing, right? You can't do it by yourself. You need field agents. You need people that are doing all the task entry and things of that nature. What would your top three tips be for somebody that's looking to get into REO right now?
0: The first thing that I would do is I would find someone else in your market who is already doing it and get in and work under them, even if the pay is less. Humble yourself, right? Learn it. There are, there are a couple agents here, some of which I, I'm still, you know, I haven't talked to them in a few years, but we're still friends. They started by working with somebody who was a top producer at that time in that field. And they ended up, you know, cause the, the, the asset managers ended up talking to them more than to the top producer. And so they were able to develop those relationships. They learned the systems, they learned exactly everything that those, those particular, and cause each bank had a different set of mm-hmm. requirements of what they wanted and how they wanted it. And if you didn't give it to them just right, it was coming back to you. So that would be the the first thing that I would would say. Be prepared, go in and work under somebody else. Just humble yourself and do it. You know, there's no place for an ego in that business. (laughs) None at all. Uh, The second thing that I would um, suggest is be prepared, to put in a whole lot more effort than you're going to get out for several years. Be prepared for it. It's not that it's not worth it. It's just that you can't go in expecting REO is going to be this get-rich-quick scheme thing. I, I just through my through my career, I kept seeing those things pop up in my emails. You know, this guy's teaching REO this this that. There's big bucks. You know, there's all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. going. on. It was never like that. Never there were agents who made a killing they did they did really good but they had systems in place and they knew what they were doing and the other thing that was they were established before 2008 mm-hmm. you know they were well established in that before 2008 i, I can't i can't uh, emphasize enough how important it is to get under someone who knows what they're doing and who's been there but it's you know being prepared for those long hours uh, is is something that I would definitely suggest that the, the pay at the beginning is not going to be worth it for what you feel you're doing. And it may not be that way for years. Uh, the last thing really comes more along the lines of a uh, personal protection matter. Um, you know, but for, for me, I wish I would have had that person that I could have worked under, but I basically learned everything, just kind of school of hard knocks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I ended mm-hmm. up Many times in, in, in situations that I, I'm looking back at it now and I said, Matt, what were you thinking? You know, when you got into there, you know, there, there, there were houses that I went into to do inspections and you found out someone was in there who you didn't think was in there, you didn't know it was in there, you know, and you got yourself into a situation that was not compromise. you know, it was compromising, right? Always let someone know when you're out in the field you should be out in the field. At first you should be out there. You should don't ask anyone else to do anything you're not yourself willing to do. Right. That's, that's, that's the way, that's the way I, I think of it. Um, but always let someone know where you are mm-hmm. always, especially when you're doing that. Cause at the beginning for me, the way I got in was I was taking the assignments that everyone else didn't want.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I was going to the places where, You know, nobody wanted to They they just, I got to take that assignment, you know, and and the top producers that they had earned it, right. They didn't want to take that one. Okay, fine. Send it over here. I'll take it, Mm -hmm. you know, but learn to be in constant contact with people because you never know what you're going to find in these houses. You just don't.
2: I love that answer so much. Um, the details you gave were, were spot on. Um, I did limited field work I was experienced in the field, especially in the acquisitions thing. But I mean, yeah, you definitely need to be careful. Um, the first tip you gave was absolutely the best tip anybody could get that actually applies to almost anything. If you're looking to learn something, go find somebody else that's doing it and learn from them, but in particular in REO, because as you said, it's so systemic, if you don't have a system, if you don't have the accounting in place, it sounds so easy, but it is so easy to lose money too um so that was a tremendous response um, what is your guys' vision for the next 12 months
0: keep adjusting wherever wherever <laughs> we feel that there's that there's a niche or there is a market need and we can see that we we may have the ability or the expertise to fill it that's where we're going to go as a as a small company we don't have the big name we don't have the flashy lights we don't have the top producers for us it's agility right it's it's being able to move and to adapt mm-hmm. to where the market is going and and to be able to provide a product or service that either very few or none of our competitors are providing so you know what that looks like in the next 12 to 24 months i I would be lying if I could, I could tell you that was because when, you know, 2020 hit, it, com- it completely changed everything in, you know, our business life, but also, you know, in, in our personal lives, it, it changed a lot. And we said, well, maybe next time you ought to be a little more prepared, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I, it, it, if there was anything, any big lesson that came out of that was learn to be, learn to become even more adaptable than what you are. And learn to adjust and be able to switch switch what's your your game faster, if you will. You know, a big company, they're great, they got the name, they got the brand, they got all that stuff, but these big corporations, such being able to get them move in the shift, it can take a long time. Mm-hmm. It can take a long time to do. And in that gap, at least for a time,
2: there's opportunity. Absolutely. Love that answer. I just followed. That. Go ahead
3: i said i just follow him
2: okay there you go
3: <laughs> wherever he goes I go. <laughs>
2: it, it, it sounds like it's working extremely well so keep it going um yeah i mean that was a tremendous answer in this market that's clearly shifting i could feel it um i'm sure most people can it is important to be fluid so that was a very tremendous answer um this has been great i mean we've learned lots of great stuff about foreclosures and acquisition and we've also learned stuff on the reo management process so Um, I want to thank you both so much for sharing everything that you did today. I mean, you've given tremendous value to the audience. So Devaney Carswell and Michael Klein, it's been an absolute pleasure having you guys on the show. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So commit to taking one action and do it within the next seven days. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.